Well, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. It's so good to see you here this morning. We're going to worship the risen Lord this Easter Sunday and celebrate the resurrection. And uh, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. We've been looking at the apostles over the recent weeks, and this morning I wanted to look at Thomas, because you know Thomas, what's his nickname? The Doubting Thomas. Everybody calls him the Doubting Thomas. And so I thought it'd be good on Easter Sunday, where we remember and celebrate the resurrection, the greatest event of all time that changed history and divided it in two. To talk about doubt, because all of us at some point in our lives deal with doubt. We work through doubt. We... we, we look at it, we, sometimes we wallow in it, and sometimes we work through it to deeper faith. That's what happened for Thomas, and that's what I want us to look at here in these few moments this morning. The famous passage about the doubting Thomas comes in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, starting at verse 24 and going through verse 29. The sermon is entitled, Thomas Doubting to Believe. Doubting to Believe. Because what's important about Thomas is he didn't remain in his doubt, but he actually worked through it and grew through it and came to deeper faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to do here this morning because there have been times in your life when you have faced doubt, when you've wondered if God is alive and if he's alive, if he cares, if he has a relationship with you. You've wondered if what we've heard about the resurrection is really true. How could something so wonderful be true? And how, what, what in the world does that have meaning for our lives today? All those doubts, I've worked through them. I've been there. And maybe some of you have, and maybe some of you are there right now. Verse 24 of John 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Well, eight days later, this would be the following Sunday. Jesus appeared to the disciples the first time on Sunday evening. Eight days later, the Jews counted the first and the last day. So eight days later would be the following Sunday. His disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. I bet he didn't leave them at all that week. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Pray with me. Jesus, I wish in some ways that you were here with us in the flesh and we could could see you and touch you and know that that you're there. But you knew you'd be leaving. And so you said, blessed are those who do not see and yet still believe. So help us, Lord, this Easter Sunday to believe who you are, what you did on Friday for us, for our sins, and what God did through you on Sunday 
when he raised you from the dead, victorious over the grave, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Thomas has always been called the Doubting Thomas because of this passage right here in Scripture where he's not with the disciples that first Sunday when Jesus appeared to them following his resurrection. And he says, I will not believe unless I can see him and touch him and and talk to him. So he's always been called the Doubting Thomas. I remember very distinctly as a child, I must have been seven or eight years old, we had some neighbors of ours where I grew up that were of a, distant, a, a different faith from us. And uh, mom, my mom, I don't know if she got into an argument with them or a debate or what, but she came back into the house and I distinctly remember her telling my father that our neighbors said we were the Doubting Thomases. I didn't know what it meant, but I, it didn't sound good. It didn't sound like a compliment. And, and all... As I grew, I realized that it was a reference to this passage of Thomas here in this passage of Scripture of the resurrection. But what I want us to learn this morning from Thomas is that doubt does not have to be bad. You do not have to deny your doubt and push it back and say, you know, that's, that's not good. That's not Christian to wonder, to ask questions, to doubt. What is bad is when you linger in your doubt indefinitely, when you never work through it, when you never resolve it. I'm here to testify to you this morning that the Bible has answers for every doubt that you have. And if you will continue to look at it and work through it, your faith can become even deeper and even stronger as a result of having gone through those phases of doubt. And that's what Thomas did. He didn't leave the disciples never to be heard of again, but he remained with them because Assurance is found in the fellowship of other believers. People who doubt and who pull away from the church and never open their Bible and never pray again will remain in that doubt indefinitely. But if you continue to come, if you continue to to look at the Bible, if you continue to talk to God, those questions and doubts will have answers. And your faith will be even stronger as a result. I want us to look at Thomas Specifically, Thomas is listed in all four Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke is just listed with the other apostles. In John, we have some accounts of Thomas that give us a picture of what his character is like. The name Thomas in Hebrew just means twin. In Greek, he's also called Didymus, which also means twin. So we don't know what his real name was. He was just called the twin, and we don't even know who his twin was. We just know he was a twin because that's how he was referred to in Hebrew and in Greek. There are some passages, as I said, in John's gospel where he comes to the surface and and kind of reveals to us what his personality is like. The first time comes in John chapter 11. And this is the story of uh, Lazarus getting sick in Bethany. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, and Jesus loves all three of them. As a matter of fact, Bethany is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and every time Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's going to stay at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, going into the city, coming out of the city. It often says he stayed in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because he loved them. They were close. To, to, he was close to that family. And Jesus, Mary and Martha, send word 
to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is sick. He's sick. And this is Jesus, it says, verse 5 of John 11, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, who's Mary, and Lazarus. This is an interesting verse. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what did he do? He didn't rush to Bethany. It says, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why in the world, once he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was? Because Jesus was going to do a greater miracle than just healing a sick man. He was going to raise someone from the dead. So after a couple days, word comes to Jesus that Lazarus has indeed passed away. And Jesus said, he's not dead, he's only asleep. And he says, it's time now to go to Bethany. And his other disciples say, don't go. Do you remember the last time you were in Jerusalem, the religious leaders tried to stone you? If you go to Bethany, they're going to find out that you're there and your life is going to be in danger. And it's Thomas, the doubting Thomas, who says, let us, verse 16, Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I always wondered what that verse meant, but what it meant was they expected Jesus going to Bethany to see about Lazarus would attract the attention of the religious leaders who tried to kill him. They would try once again, and Thomas says, let's go so we can die with him. Now, you might call Thomas a pessimist, but don't call him a doubter at this point because he's not really doubting. He's ready to go and do whatever Jesus does, if it means going to Jerusalem, if it means facing death, let's go, that we might die with him. The second time Thomas rises to the surface in John's gospel is in the upper room. Do you remember they've just had the, the Last Supper, and Jesus has washed their feet. And then in John 14, he begins to prepare them for the time when he's going to leave. He's going to leave. And he wants them to know that in that time of separation that they're going to have to depend on prayer and they're going to have to depend on God because he'll no longer be with them in the flesh. And so he says these familiar words in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He goes on to say, my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And as Thomas who says... Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, once again, I don't think Thomas is doubting here. I think he is just asking a question that all the other disciples were too afraid to ask. Thomas is saying, Lord, where are you going? We don't know the way. We want to be with you. Show us the way so we can never be apart, so we will never be separated. And because Thomas asked that question, we get this, this famous statement from Jesus, John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Jesus responds by saying, Thomas, you want to know the way? Look at me. I am the way and the truth and the life. This is how you get to the Father. This is how you have a relationship with God by being in relationship with Jesus. Well, the third instance of Thomas is the one in our passage today. <clears throat> Jesus 
Easter Sunday morning has been gloriously raised from the dead, and he begins to appear to the disciples. And he appears to them one at a time, and then he appears to them in a group, and then he appears to a big group. But on that first Easter Sunday, Thomas is not with them. And don't condemn him here. People deal with grief in different ways. You know, I've known folks who who've been sick and they want to be left alone. I've known people who grieve the loss of a loved one and they don't want to be with a lot of other people. They want to be off by themselves somewhere to grieve in their own way. There's nothing wrong with that. But because Thomas was not with the other 10 apostles, remember Judas is already gone. Because Thomas isn't with the other 10 apostles in that upper room where the Last Supper had been observed just three days, four days earlier, He's not uh, there when Jesus appears to them. He's not there. And so they come to Thomas and they say, we have seen the Lord. And this is where Thomas gets his nickname, the Doubting Thomas. He says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. And once again, we call him the Doubting Thomas, but he's not asking for anything here that the other ten apostles had already received because remember, they had seen Jesus. They had seen the wounds in his side and in his hands and in his feet. And so Thomas is just asking for the same opportunity and the same privilege that had been afforded them when they saw Jesus that morning. Well, he, he spends... The whole week with them, I doubt Thomas left them for a moment in those seven days that were intervening before the following Sunday. And it says in verse 26, eight days later, as I said once again, it's the following Sunday because the Jews count the first day and the last day. His disciples were again in the house where probably they had been the whole time. I mean, if Jesus had appeared to me in a certain place, I would stay there and I would remain there hoping to see him again. His disciples were in the house and Thomas was with them because he wasn't going anywhere. The doors were shut because time and distance did not impede Jesus in his resurrection body. And he comes in and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. And then he looks directly at Thomas because he knew miraculously what Thomas had said. Thomas Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Thomas didn't have to do that. He didn't reach out and put his hand in the wounds. He didn't touch Jesus. He just fell on his knees and declared with one of the greatest confessions in the Bible, my Lord and my God, you are alive. You were crucified on Friday. My brothers told me that they had seen you a week ago, but now I have seen you with my own eyes, my Lord and my God. And so Jesus visits with them and he lets him see his wounds. He even eats a piece of fish. But Thomas was not with them. You know, there are a lot of reasons why people doubt. And I've, you know, in my own experience and, and talking to many of you, Reasons why people doubt. There there are life experiences. Something troubling happens to you growing up. Maybe it's the death of a parent or a sibling or or someone, a grandparent, someone you're close to. 
Somewhere along the way, something hurt you and you wondered if there is a God and if there is, why did he let this happen to me? He could have done something. Why didn't he intervene and stop this pain? Why, why do innocent children suffer? Why does evil seem to be so rampant in the world today? Why are so many good people hurting? And so we have cause for doubt. Just because of life's experiences, it's not easy living in this world. A lot of, a lot of church members, and I know some of these, and you may too, and, and I went through this too. I went off to college, and I read things, and I heard things like by Karl Marx that said, religion is an opiate of the people. I remember Sigmund Freud said, God is an illusion of human origin. I remember sitting and, and hearing a play that said, religion is a chloroform mask into which the frightened and weak stick their faces to avoid reality. Have you heard that kind of thing in college? Religion is a chloroform mask in which the frightened and weak stick their faces to avoid reality. There were philosophy professors in college, and I've taught in college before where Philosophy professors loved, they, they delighted in taking the faith of entering freshmen and destroying it. They would say things like, religion is just a crutch for weak people. It fulfills a wish. It satisfies a need. And so these college students, impressed with all these smart people and all these things that they have read, they come home from college and they announce to their families and friends that they are now atheists. It happens quite often, I'm afraid. But before you rest there, before you get satisfied there and, and announce that there is no God, let me give you some things to think about. Let me give you some things to think about. Read a gospel. Read the gospel of Mark. It's only 16 chapters. It only takes about 45 minutes to read from start to finish. Let me ask you a question. Does the story of Jesus as presented in the Gospel of Mark look like the creation of someone weak and fearful? Does the presentation of Jesus, does the story of Jesus look like it was created by somebody who was weak and fearful? Would a weak person compose a story of God who became a suffering servant? Would a weak person compose a story about God who, whose only begotten son was crucified on a cross? That would be unheard of. A weak and fearful person would never come up with a story like that. Let me ask you to look at the story of, of Saul in the book of Acts. Was Saul someone who looked like he needed the story of Jesus to be true. You remember the story of Saul? He's on his way to Damascus, and he has all the power and all the resources of the Jewish authorities behind him. He is looking to stamp out Christianity and persecute everybody who bore the name of Christ. On that way, does it look like he was hoping that the story of Jesus would be true? Of course not. Paul had to come to terms with the fact that if the story of Jesus were true, then it would mean that his enemies were right and everything he had been taught and believed his entire life were false. 
That's not what Paul expected. But Paul was confronted with the Christ and had to change everything about his past, everything he'd been taught, and everything he had believed. Paul was not someone who wanted the story of Jesus to be true because he needed a crutch to lean on because he was so weak. Third and finally, let me ask you this question. If you were going to make up a religion, and believe me, there have been thousands of religions that have been composed in the last two millennia, even before, thousands of religions. If you were going to make up a religion, would you make up anything like what we have in the Bible? The religions that I hear about today that have been composed recently are all about self-help and imagining a better world and working to make it a better world. You hear that message all the time. There's not much in these made-up religions about denying yourself or about self-sacrifice. As a matter of fact, the core beliefs of the Christian faith are the polar opposite of what a weak and selfish person would contrive. It just wouldn't happen this way. And how many religious founders of religion, how many were crucified? To me, that's evidence right there that this is not made up because nobody would make up a religion where the founder is crucified. That just makes the story of Jesus sound even more authentic because it's the exact opposite of what you would expect somebody who was weak and selfish and needed a crutch to lean on. It's the opposite of what you'd expect somebody like that to compose. It just doesn't happen. This is not made up. And so Thomas remained with the other ten disciples for a week, and Jesus appeared and said, Thomas, Put your finger here. Put your hand here. Do not be faithless, but believing. And without having to do that, Thomas fell on his knees and declared, My Lord, and by God. And Jesus responded with a beatitude. Now you thought all the beatitudes were in the Sermon on the Mount, but here's another one. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus is not shaming Thomas here for his, his request to see and touch Jesus. He's not, he's not shaming Thomas. But what he is doing is preparing his followers for that time when he'll no longer be with them. Because Jesus knows the time is coming when we were able to, when the disciples were able to see Jesus with the five senses, when they were able to understand and follow him with the five senses, would no longer be available. And we'd have to use the sixth sense, the sense of faith. And so Jesus is saying, you have believed in me because you have seen me. Blessed are those who will not be able to see me 
but still manage to believe because they're seeing now with eyes of faith. Up until this time, seeing was believing. But after this, believing would be seeing. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I wish I could stand before you this morning and give you scripture and verse and evidence beyond evidence that would prove to you that Jesus was raised from the dead, but there has to be an element of faith in there. There has to be a step of belief. There has to be that, that portion of your life that you say, God, I don't know what to think here, and I still have questions, but I'm going to take this small step of faith and acknowledge that based on everything I know about you, everything I've heard about you, everything I've read about you in the Bible, everything I've talked to my friends about with you, I'm going to believe, I'm going to trust, I'm going to try, and I'm going to take this step of faith. And when you take that step of faith believing, then Jesus said, you'll be blessed and you will be able to see because your eyes of faith will have been opened. Well, what happens to Thomas after this? As with so many other apostles, his, he drops out of sight except for another resurrection appearance at the end of John's gospel where the disciples are fishing. They sit and eat fish together around a campfire. But the tradition of Thomas is that whereas the other apostles went westward with the gospel, Thomas, it is said, went eastward as far as India. And to this day, there are churches in India that trace their origin back to the Apostle Thomas. There is a church called St. Thomas in India. And it is said that Thomas, when some other folks there didn't like the message that he was preaching, like the other apostles, was martyred for his faith, and he was run through with a lance. And it was done on a mountain that now bears his name. It's called Mount Thomas in southern India. What I want you to see about Thomas is that God does not condemn honest doubt any more than he rejects us for our sin. As a matter of fact, I think it was Tennyson who said, there's more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. What God doesn't want, though, is that you linger in your doubt, that you wallow in it indefinitely. Problems arise when we allow doubt to take over and we fall away from the church and we stop reading the Bible and we stop praying and we stop searching. And we just stay in that quagmire indefinitely. But Thomas shows us how to work through that doubt, how to how to keep coming in the fellowship of other believers, how to keep asking questions, how to keep searching, how to keep finding answers. And when we do, Jesus will reveal himself to us and we will respond to him as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Friends, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is risen indeed. And we have all the evidence we need 
to believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe and still work with their faith. Paul says, you know, work with your faith in fear and trembling. Keep working at it. Keep wrestling with it. Keep growing through it. Keep asking questions. Keep fellowshipping with other believers. Keep talking to other Christians. Keep worshiping God and work through that doubt. And you'll find the occasion that for which your doubt arose will find an answer. It might not be the one you expected or the one that you were looking for. But it'll be the answer that God has for you. And you can believe. And you can have faith. And believing, you'll be able to see. Let's bow together. Father, we would love to see Jesus as those apostles that walked the dusty roads of Palestine did. We would love to have been in that upper room when Jesus appeared to them. can't imagine the emotions that swept through that room, the, the disbelief, the fear, the excitement, the joy all wrapped up together. And then the resolve to go out and proclaim that their Lord who had been crucified, which everyone witnessed, had truly been raised from the dead. I can't imagine what must have happened. A lot of us here today may have been like Thomas. And instead of being with the other disciples, we chose to go off by ourselves and grieve the loss of our Lord. And then when we heard a rumor that some had seen him actually struggle with that and want to believe, but just needing a little more evidence, a little more proof. And then when Jesus reveals himself, my Lord and my God. There is a step of faith that, that we take this day, but it's an easy step. And it's a smaller step than we would have to take were we to choose not to believe. And so, Lord, we believe this day. Our doubts have been answered. And our love for Jesus has been confirmed. Thank you, God, for dying on the cross through your son Jesus that our sins could be forgiven and then raising him from the dead on Easter Sunday so we could have eternal life. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.